Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Hi, I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Welcome to another episode of Tearing Down Walls on Sunshine Live, a show in partnership with WNHU at the University of New Haven in the United States. Every month, I join you from Berlin for a transatlantic talk about the things that unite and divide us. November is Native American Heritage Month in the U.S. It's also the month where Americans celebrate Thanksgiving, which has a far more complicated and bloodier history than we're often taught. The same can be said about Germany and its colonial history. Educators and activists are pushing for more acknowledgement of the country's colonial past in the classroom, in museums, and on the streets of Berlin. In this episode, we delve into the myths we're taught and look at post-colonialism on both sides of the Atlantic. Joining me now from Germany, actually in transit on a Deutsche Bahn train, is Naita Hishono. She is the executive director of the Namibia Institute for Democracy. Naita, welcome. Hi. And joining us from the U.S. is Renee Goki. She's a citizen of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma and teacher services coordinator at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian. Welcome, Renee. Hato, hello, and thank you for having me, Sylvia. Thanks for being here. So, Renee, in your role at the Smithsonian, you have offered tips on how teachers can move beyond overused and oversimplified curriculums for teaching about Native cultures. Can you share more about your approach to re-educating students and teachers? So often around this time of the year, it's both Native American Heritage Month in the United States and one of our important national holidays, Thanksgiving. So people often are teaching about Native Americans at this time with you know, simple crafts, maybe not even um, mentioning the tribal names of the diverse cultures that are still here today and in the Americas, but talking more generally about Native Americans and often teaching more of a trilogy approach, which is how I often have coined it. And it's food, clothing and shelter, you know, and often about Native people in the past. So these are kind of simplified and narrow ways of teaching about Native people. And so we hope teachers and parents will do, is start to talk about the immense contributions of Native people in science, for example, in agriculture and through water irrigation, allowing Indigenous peoples to thrive in the Americas for thousands of years before contact and in uh, rich agricultural traditions that contribute about 60% of the world's foods today actually rely on Indigenous food science and things like technology, suspension bridges, and certain aspects of medicine, and even government. The great law of peace that originates with the Haudenosaunee, or Six Nations people, helped influence our own American government. And that law requires and declares a basic respect for the rights of all people. So these are just some of the types of contributions that we hope teachers will share with their students. Nida, can you give us some insight into the way in which German colonialism is taught in the classroom? The topic of colonialism and reparations and dealing with the history, although it is an issue that's in the German curriculum, not a lot of teachers deal with it because it's not mandatory. So the way they handle it is to their best ability. For a long time, Germany hasn't uh, seen their colonial history 
as an important issue to include. And for the longest time, it was a discussion if what happened in Namibia was a genocide or not. So for Germans, their colonial history, dealing with it in their textbooks and in the schools, it's a very recent topic. And because it's a very new and fresh and recent topics, the different methodologies and tools to use is only now being discussed. We are very much in the beginning stages and therefore it's a very undervalued and under-discussed topic. Renee, do you see a parallel in that? Do you feel that it's a more recent development um, that American history is now being taught with this correct context? We are seeing, um, you know, a lot of gaps in the curriculum. And as Nida said, you know, it's not necessarily mandatory. Um, There are some states that are having mandatory curriculum that teaches about indigenous histories more accurately, but nationally we're not there. There's still much work to be done. There's a lot of stories to tell. And when she mentioned Namibia and asking if is it genocide or not, we have a new material that is around the California gold rush. And it is an inquiry that asks that same question of um, indigenous peoples in California and the colonists coming in in order to seek gold. So that's an interesting connection and that should launch in the in the coming months. Nida, can you talk a little bit about Namibians awareness and understanding of German colonialism versus the German understanding and maybe give us some context about how it's talked about in Namibia and the impacts that are still seen today? Yes, in Namibia, the German history and the colonialism is omnipresent. It's everywhere around us. It's in the architecture, it's in the economic empowerment of the German community. They are one of the most powerful economic groups in Namibia. It's in the street names, it's in the schools. The German private schools are one of the most sought after schools. And Namibians know of Germany, but Germans don't know about Namibia. So it's this very skewed power relation between Germany and Namibia. German colonial history is taught in the Namibian books, but for young people, it's a chapter in their history but it's not something they deal with the whole time unless your family is a descendant of those people that were directly affected by the genocide. For the Ovaherero San and Nama community, the genocide is something that is talked about, passed on in oral history, passed on in the families, the stories, and people know about it. And they deal with it and they've been uh, lobbying and advocating for Germany to acknowledge the genocide and uh, lobbying for Germany to pay reparations or conduct restitution or for German farmers to deal with the history because 1% of the country, the white population sits on 70% of the land. Only 2015 did the German government decided they will take up the discussions for reparations. But now these talks have stalled Uh, because Germany now had its uh, new elections. So it's present in Namibia. People know about it, they read about it, but it's very much a Namibian issue more than it's a German issue so far. Renee, Native Knowledge 360 is an initiative from the Smithsonian that offers students and teachers new perspectives on Native American history and cultures. Can you share what has been a rewarding part of your job and the development of that platform? We're still working on and figuring out how to make a systems change. You know, I think 
teachers realize, you know, this omnipresence of colonialism and recognizing how they might be part of that and how they can seek in their own lives to to work towards social justice and environmental justice and including more indigenous perspectives. And um, I think that that's been really satisfying to actually see and hear from teachers because I work in teacher training and have them kind of say, I need to unlearn what I've learned my whole life. And this is really hard for me. Um, so unlearning, we recognize that people aren't starting from zero. These aren't blank slates that most of us grew up in this education system, which is very colonial, of course. And how can we um, reframe that and provide avenues and pathways for people to to learn more and seek justice? And I think that's been really satisfying. Naita, I want to put the same question to you. Can you share one of the achievements you're most proud of in the work that you do? One of the most achievements we are most proud of is not something that us as an institution or myself has have achieved, but that's for Germany to realize that, yes, what they've done was a genocide. Yes, what happened is a crime against humanity that needs to be rectified. And them just uh, saying that they acknowledge it, that's already a step in the right direction. What needs to happen next is to make it mandatory in the German school curriculum. And that's something we as an institution and other civil society organizations are working on to make the education of the German colonialism and imperialism known and to also draw the connection to what's happening to climate today because colonialism was the start of many European countries of their exploration and of their exploitation of African, Asian and South American and American countries. Colonialism was the justification that was the beginning of racism because racism justified what those colonial powers were doing in Africa because without that colonial theory, they wouldn't have justified to their own population why they paid for it. They realized today that colonialism in the end cost them more than what it was worth it. But in the long run, the industrial gains are lasting until today. So that realization is a huge win for us, for that realization to have dawned and to work from there. Naita Hishono is the executive director of the Namibia Institute for Democracy, and Renee Goki is the teacher services coordinator at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you, ladies, for giving us a voice. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. Today we're talking about how the U.S. and Germany contextualize their colonial histories in public discourse and in the classroom. Joining me from Berlin is Jana Gottschalk. She's the managing director of Pen Paper Peace, a nonprofit organization that is committed to achieving peace through education. Welcome, Jana. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Pen Paper Peace campaigns for the political education of children in Europe on the one hand, and also works to provide education to children in some of the world's poorest regions. And one of the goals is to engage in an eye-level exchange between German students and students in countries including Haiti and Namibia. What do you think is necessary about this exchange and what do you think the children are learning about each other? I can say from the German context, um, 
Haiti or Namibia or Honduras are really not on the on the mental map of, of children and teenagers in, in Europe because those countries are very much yeah like they, they don't reach the news very often or in a very specific context so we're working on creating like a knowledge that is not full of stereotypes and and also like hierarchies of interactions um so we're we're telling about the the history and the very rich and varied history of those countries but also to to just talk about what what is the the situation with for example climate change there how do children and young people live in those countries and to just break up stereotyping so let's zero in on the curriculum that's actually taught in german classrooms especially as it pertains to germany's colonial history do you have a sense that students are even aware that germany had colonies um i think that is slowly changing um, because, you know, especially the German colonial history in Namibia has made the news in, in Germany, uh, especially this year. And for example, in Berlin, there's all those um, colonial traces, for example, city tours. Um, so students nowadays have a much better understanding that uh, Germany was a colonial power and uh, yeah, did commit crimes also during those times. And, but still, I mean, it, it's still a, a topic very much under taught in the classroom, I would say. And there's lots of potential to, to changing that situation still. And are there any common questions that come up from the school children in Germany about this history? I mean, usually, you know, I, I start a class with uh, the question, so how come people in Namibia, for example, speak German? Or why are a lot of the street names German to just raise an interest? Or the same story with Haiti, because one of the national languages is French. And, and to just come up with like, okay, so how can that be? And I think students are, are generally very interested how their peers live in those countries and how I mean, yeah, I mean, children are very empathic, so they're they trying to understand what that means actually for them in a different position, basically. So, but they're also interested in like, so what music are they listening to or that kind of stuff? Well, what are their hobbies? What do they want to become as a profession and so on? So it's not just about looking back at the past and what Germany did, but about how that impacted the future and what daily life looks like. Exactly. Um, and I think that's also a very important aspect because, I mean, it's very important to know the history and also like all the injustices that happen, um, but also to create like a present and also a future where where you can interact at eye level and, and to create like a common understanding of the current world. So I think both steps are very important. Jana Goldschalk is the managing director of Pen Paper Peace. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. Today we're hearing perspectives on Germany's and the United States colonial pasts. I'm joined now by Angelina Caroli, a sophomore studying criminal justice at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station WNHU. Angelina is also a member of the Mohegan Tribe of Connecticut. Welcome, Angelina. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. 
So let's start off um, learning a little bit more about you. What compelled you to study criminal justice? I wanted to study criminal justice and I'm going to pursue a minor in psychology as well. Um, But I wanted to study criminal justice and psychology just because I love learning about the law and I love learning about uh, the human brain and how it how it works, really. So you grew up on Long Island in New York. I want to ask you about your experience going through the U.S. educational system and how the country's history has been contextualized. And more specifically, when, if ever, have you been in a classroom experience where the stories and perspectives of indigenous peoples were centered? I mean... They weren't really centered too much growing up, um, from what I remember. Um, Here in the U.S., we have um, Thanksgiving, which just passed. Um, So, you know, as children in elementary school, we learn about, like, the story of Thanksgiving, um, which usually includes the British settlers or pilgrims, you know, making friends with all the indigenous peoples. And that the natives taught the pilgrims how to grow corn and everyone had a great happy feast. But, you know, that's not the case. Um, But that's what we were taught. So, you know, as children growing up, we all thought that, you know, Thanksgiving was like this great, great thing that happened with allyship between the pilgrims and the natives, but it really wasn't. And um, even I remember, I don't really remember if my class did this, but some classes, you know, would make hats out of paper. So they would make like a pilgrim hat, or they would make an indigenous headdress out of paper. Which, thinking of it now, is borderline a little bit of appropriation, which wasn't too great. And you're a member of the Mohegan tribe of Connecticut. Yes. Has the history of your tribe been taught or acknowledged in the classroom setting? Well, my tribe is not local to where I grew up, so our history wasn't really like relevant to my area. But we don't really learn about any tribal history around our, our surrounding tribes at all. You know, they're not really acknowledged. In a previous interview, you talked about how Native peoples are represented in media and the mainstream. Can you talk a little bit about what you remember seeing as a child and what impressions you have now about the way Indigenous peoples are represented? Any, you know, quote-unquote representation that I remember seeing as a child would just be non-Natives appropriating Native culture, you know, and that's not a great impression to have when you're a child because, you know, seeing people that are like you and, you know, act like you and live like you, but they're not actually like you, you know? So I never really saw any actual indigenous peoples participating in their culture in media growing up. You know, it wasn't until I got older where I actually started experiencing my culture more and actually seeing it more. We don't see a lot still with Indigenous representation, but it is starting to get better. You know, we are seeing a lot more Indigenous representation in media slowly but surely, you know, um, with TV shows such as uh, Chambers on Netflix or Reservation Dogs on like Hulu um, that have Native leads and revolve around Indigenous experiences. And I think that's really great that we're starting to see that a lot more now. Angelina Caroli is a sophomore studying criminal justice at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station, WNHU. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was great. Tearing Down Wards, a Sunshine Life podcast.
In this final part of the show, I'm joined by Emnyaka Savoro Mboro. He is the co-founder of Berlin Postcolonial. Welcome. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. So you were born in Tanzania and came to Germany in the late 1970s to study. How did you experience that time in Germany when you first arrived, uh, when it came to Germany's colonial past? Was there any awareness? When I came here, really, there wasn't any awareness. Even there was a certain time where I thought of they are making jokes of me because anyway, when I did try to ask about certain things to do with German colonialism in East Africa, today is Tanzania, then they were looking at me as if I am not really well or as a crazy person or something like that. It took time to realize that most of them, they were not informed or they don't have any information about German colonialism. And you've been involved in this activism now for decades. And in 2007, you co-founded the organization Berlin Postcolonial, which has been involved with many different initiatives, including this very lengthy effort to rename Berlin street names from names that honor colonizers to names that commemorate the men and women who fought against this brutality. Can you update us? Where is this process now? This process is really, then you find that when we had a commemoration match here in Berlin in 2004 to commemorate our ancestors who were murdered in the extermination war, which took in German South West Africa, today's Namibia. So we prolonged it in 2005, 2006, and 2007, and is when we started exactly at that time really demanding certain streets must be renamed. The first one which really we talked about, it is a Groben Ufa, and Groben was a slave trader, transatlantic slave trade, who was sent to Africa by the great elector of Brandenburg, Friedrich Wilhelm. The company which was founded by, by them, they managed to bring over 20,000 slaves to the U.S. or to the Caribbean. And then the street has been now renamed in 2010, before the history wasn't there. But now, if someone comes around, there is an information board there where it says the first name giver was Groden. And who was Groden? And now the new names giver is Mayahim, who was Mayahim. And of course, as you said, it's not enough to change the street names without giving the context with it. How much of this effort has been focused on that, on saying that there needs to be education that goes hand in hand with these changes to understand why they're happening? Yeah, you find that we have a lot of events and we have tours through this tours. Then people get to learn what really happens before. We also try to use the media and also we have kind of feasts celebrating the renaming of that street and so on. You find it is now a learning place. When people go there, especially children and so on, then they get already known. 
and then you find when they go back, then they will start talking to their parents or talking to their neighbors and so on, and then you find it is spread. When it comes to Germany's colonial past, you've talked about how it's not just about reparations, but it's also about the significance of an apology. And earlier this year, German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas apologized to Namibia and victims' descendants for the genocide at the beginning of the 20th century and talked about this 1.1 billion euro program for various reconstruction and development projects. Not everybody saw this as sufficient. How did this apology sit with you? With me, I don't take it as an apology. And for me, I don't know how people, they are coming to say that there was an apology. Because for me, an apology, it comes publicly from the parliament. Or Mr. Maas, the foreign minister, should have to go to Namibia and one where this concentration camps where and do his apology there. But this haven't happened. What I'm hearing always about reconciliation and for we Africans, we find that is an insult because I don't know how reconciliation can come before someone apologizes. I don't know any tradition which starts with the reconciliation without an apology. Another topic that's widely talked about, not just in Germany, but in France and England, is museums and how this history is framed in them. And the Humboldt Forum in Berlin opened to visitors in July, and this was a very controversial project and one that you and many other activists protested, not only because it's housed inside this reconstructed Berlin Palace, which is the symbol of Prussian rule, but also because it's supposed to showcase many, many objects that were forcibly taken from Africa and Germany's colonies. It's opened, of course, in spite of protests. What do you want to see happen now? The opening was there with protest, but also don't forget that when they laid the foundation stone to rebuild this palace, which used to be the palace of German colonial rulers, we were there, we did protest it, and we did come to declaration, we did say, no Humboldt, 21st century. But just imagine rebuilding this palace of the German colonial rulers. And there they will exhibit the objects which were looted during their colonial time. Very, very brutally. Our ancestors were murdered. Ask yourself how much blood lies on these objects. And they didn't even up to now care to cooperate us as diasporas or to cooperate people from Africa who are concerned with these objects. And please, they, these objects are not just only objects. They are those ones which are spiritual objects which we need them to perform our rituals. It is like when now I march here to a church, a Catholic church, and I get the altar out. Will it be a church? No, but I am asking, is that ignorance? Or is that racism? Or is that colonialism? 
I don't know what is behind in their thinking. They should know that colonialism, it is over. It is no longer there. So there is another way of working together. What is this way of working together? I mean, just hearing the number of protests over years and years and years that have happened, how do you see hope for the conversation to be heard when it seems like these demands and requests are ignored at every turn? They can, they can, they can ignore the way they would like. Just only I'm waiting for the exhibition to be completed because it's not yet complete. It's just only even those objects which just only now are there might be most of them they will be given back but what we will do and me myself personally i haven't gone in there and in, right now i'm not ready to go in there but when the exhibition is finished then i will go in there then i will do the critical tours there with groups of people and so on so it isn't over Amyaka Savora Mboro is the co-founder of Berlin Postcolonial. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for tuning into this edition of Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Müller-Kroll. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. <laughs>